to the Urban Agorist Podcast. My name is James, and today I am joined by agorist, entrepreneur, and businessman Brian Norton. Uh, I don't have much in the way of introduction today, and I let Brian go ahead and introduce himself on the episode, so I'm just going to cut right into it. Here is my talk with Brian Norton. All right, Brian Norton, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. It's been great listening to your podcast get started. Yeah, for sure. So I have uh, interviewed a couple of our mutual acquaintances or friends or whatever, Miguel and Nicole Sauce, who was just on the show last week. Uh, and everyone tells me I need to get a, get a hold of this Brian Norton guy because he's done everything. Um, in, <laughs> like in like 30 seconds or less, why don't you introduce yourself for the for the audience? Um, I think the easiest way all this ties back is uh, um, I, I started listening to TSP, the survival podcast, when Jack was on episode 12, uh, went, to, um, went to his place for a conference, met Nicole Soss. Uh, I'm the guy she refers to in the background in the coffee industry that's kind of helped her see the path to growing. And uh Got at that same conference. I met the guys that do the Smurf It Up podcast. Um, been on there, and then, uh, oh gosh, it just it, it, everything's kind of spun out from there. Uh, it, and then Unloose the Goose got started, so I met the rest of those guys, and that's how I met Miguel for the uh, Sasquatch Freedom Fest. Uh, he uh, he approached me because I have land and expressed interest on a couple. Oh, actually on the freedom cell network, uh, chat for the Cascadia bioregion, I had expressed interest in like, I'm just done with this fake academic and let's get back to living. I want to have some type of party out in a giant field like the old days. And Miguel reached out and that's when, uh, Squatch Fest was born. Um, I basically told Miguel, you know, I have no interest in the whole internet running, organizing, blah stuff, but I have land and I would love to host the party for any liberty minded folks that want to get down. And, uh, and that's how the event started. And it's, uh, it's progressed really, really, uh, really nicely. It, uh, it was interesting. The, the freedom fest was held the Friday after the Tuesday orders went in place. So we went on complete and utter lockdown, like all businesses can't eat indoors, only dine out, no groups of more than six, whatever the insanity was at the time. And uh, so we really had no idea how many people were going to come out. If it, uh, It's been interesting being in the state where it all started. Uh, you yeah, understand. you really- you have a pretty interesting story about that when 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 COVID like first hit, because uh, you were you were kind of right there in Ground Zero in in no. the Greater Seattle area, right? Ground Zero, yes. Um, so <laughs> uh, after I semi-retired, I, I keep working just doing fun stuff. So anyway, I've I've been uh, I've been as a side gig hauling around super fancy bathrooms to. Uh, well, like Amazon events or really high-end wedding, et cetera. But right when this started, when the old folks were all getting locked down and uh, the panic was really starting to set in, and, and I think at that point, they really didn't figure out what it was or know how big it was going to be or, you know, lethality. None of that was known. Uh, but it was definitely uh, in the whip-up fear stage. So I, uh, I got a call to go run one of the bathrooms out in a, in a train. So we brought 
three or four of them out. And uh, it was basically, if you go back to the very first newscast and you see the tunnel that gets set up where they're sticking that thing up the lady's nose and doing the test and all that. Um, that's my uh, fat butt pushing one of those industrial heaters around in the, uh, in the evergreen green jacket. Um, so we set that whole shebang up and uh, literally uh, as soon as the news reporters got back on to uh, first Avenue and drove away from the tunnel, uh, we took all that stuff down. I took the bathrooms back out to the Valley and uh, the tent crew took the tents down the guys running that whole hoax to set up the screenshot for the five second video for the news folks or like pairs of two all driving really shiny new F three fifties with super expensive waterproof laptops. So government was willing to spend a ton. Well, and the whole thing was there weren't any actual test kits. Like they didn't exist. There weren't any in Seattle physically. Uh. Uh, so, so they the so they were just thing. so they were just shoving yeah. Q tips up people's noses for for the for the screen. Just that one car. There was no people. <laughs> oh, it was just, it was just it one was person. Like literally just the setup, so the news crews could get the get that ten second clip, and that they were on it. You know, we're we're under control. Uh, so yeah, so. Back in the very beginning, um, I, I knew what was up. I made a video about it, put it on Facebook. But after a lot of death threats and, you know, <laughs> I, I got to be lying, um, I decided to take it down. Uh, if you go back and listen to the old uh, survival podcast episodes from like March, April, uh, Jack was getting intel from the front. And uh, that's because I started door dashing. I figured the best thing in the way to be able to get anywhere in the city at any time and avoid all lockdown orders was to uh, start delivering food. <laughs> so that's clever. <laughs> doctors like to eat a lot and uh, they spend a lot on fancy food. Uh, so I was at every hospital in South King County every day for two and a half, three months. And I took a lot of video and most all the videos uh, and the other thing from my hospitality days is Go to the back door. That's where the workers hang out. So in the old days, you'd go by the back door and there'd just be like all kinds of people outside smoking. Because <laughs> smoke, nurses smoke. Um, yeah, so of course. Anyway, yeah. So you go back there if you want to talk to anybody real. Um, but yeah, they went from like, you know, 20 people hanging out by the back door to a couple people hanging out by the back door. But most of the video I got were guys in biohazmat suits standing like by themselves in a parking lot with their hood off, smoking a cigarette. Uh, there just, there was no patience. Uh, there's lots of video of idling ambulances, empty emergency rooms. Like literally they scared all the sick people. Like when I say sick, I mean like really sick, like heart disease and <laughs> having heart attacks and all, you know, all the good stuff, the emergency rooms would be full. They scared all those people away and there wasn't any COVID people. So that's why all the hospitals started massive layoffs into the middle of the summer. Cause like there was literally nobody at the hospital. Yeah, for sure. I remember, I remember seeing the pictures of like literally empty hospitals when we were, when we were talking about them being overrun earlier this year. Yeah. So, you know, but yeah, you get enough death threats for putting up actual live video of like what's really going on. Then you take them down and try to get, you know, try to weed out the crazies off the social media um, and tell the truth somewhere. So anyway, yeah, I just got 
so so having that background into the whole thing and then the numbers are coming in and you know now it's like what one out of every five thousand that even gets it might die um so yeah the whole the whole thing that it's just a fear and control game that was it was blatantly obvious i had had enough so we wanted to see we wanted to see like who else had had enough um it was awesome though like a hundred more than a hundred people came out um a lot of people rented Airbnbs off property because they didn't want to sleep in a field. <laughs> uh, we, well, we had great bonfires. Uh, it was really, uh, it was a great event. Uh, I, I, after the whole thing was over, I, there was less than a half a bag of trash. And I think I found one Pepsi can up the road that might have been ours. Uh, so wow, that's kids, great. dogs, families, Frisbee being played, uh, guy with a, acoustic guitar uh we're really hoping for a band next year and maybe a dj uh oh man so, give me yeah, so, give me a sing-along over a band any day to be honest yeah oh, well okay so this is the deal i i love decentralized um crowd source stuff so that that's the whole thought there is no leader nobody's in charge of squatch fest um it is the experience that you create so, yeah, for sure. It seems like there's a lot of these um, kind of agorist um, festivals or camping trips or whatever kind of cropping up all around the place. Like, you know, obviously there's there's uh, Pork Fest in New Hampshire every year. That's kind of the granddaddy yeah. of them all. But, you know, like here in Minnesota or maybe South Dakota, we've got um, Agora Fest, which has been going on for years. Um, they've got the uh, the thing down in Texas, um, Schilderberg. And, and Jackalope. Yeah. All of that. So, stuff. Okay, so I, I love I love seeing this stuff crop up because that's you know I mean just like just like John Bush is always talking about and Nicole Sauce, um, you know, building these communities is kind of the 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 most important thing if we're going to uh, achieve any of our goals. Absolutely, and I was approached by somebody who's worked with Spielberg that wants to do a documentary about all the Freedom Fests. Um, they wanted to send a crew out. I didn't think for the first event and just with the heightened craziness with the COVID that, that people would want cameras stuck in their face. Um, so I declined, but I'm working with that group now to pitch an idea to uh, basically spend a year and go to all of the Freedom Fest and make a documentary of something like, this is what freedom looks like and show normal happy families interacting without coercion and just the way it should be yeah for sure so let's switch gears a little bit you um mentioned earlier that you were semi-retired and so you're kind of doing these uh just sort of gig jobs just to have fun um or to investigate what's going on with covid really um what <laughs> what are you retired from where where has your career path led you i know it's a super interesting story so i'd like to i'd like to get some of that off of you just yeah, yeah. Oh, it uh, it was interesting. Uh, I graduated into uh, at that time the worst hiring economy so the world has ever seen. <laughs> Back in '92, uh, so uh, I started out with Best Kosher Sinai, um, and then we were acquired by Sarah Lee. I learned a lot about the the bottom of the grocery industry there. Uh, my very first day on the job. That was, oh God, I don't know, what, 30 years ago? That was back when like a big TV was 32 inches. I, I had to deliver a giant screen TV 
to an unlocked Cadillac door in the Dominic's parking lot. So <laughs> that was my introduction is to, into uh, the grocery world and how, uh, how that works. So basically that was a big old bribe from my boss to, uh, to the meat buyer at Dominic's. <laughs> um, so uh, let's see. Um, um, after uh, the company went to Sierra Lee, uh, I bailed and then came out west to Seattle and uh, was going to give the restaurant industry a try. So I hooked up uh, with Little Caesars franchisee, ended up becoming vice president of operations after, God, I don't know, a couple of years of, uh, of jamming. I had 10 restaurants, 300 employees were reporting to me, and I think I was like 25 28 it was insane um just oh my god working 20 hours a day for a decade i'll kill you but it was really fun i learned a ton 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 um but i really decided i liked sales way better uh so i jettisoned myself out of the uh out of the restaurant game went all the way to the bottom of the barrel and started with uh good mark foods snap into a slim gym uh and then uh, we were acquired by ConAgra. The super funny thing about that interview was when I had, when I arrived, I had done research on the completely wrong company. And uh, it was the group vice president and, uh, and the national sales manager that were, uh, that were interviewing me. And after about two minutes, I, I was clearly confused and, uh, and said, okay, so you guys aren't cross mark, you're good mark. So what the hell do you do? <laughs> so I flipped the interview on them, made them explain their company and why they were seeking help out on the West Coast. Um, and then the, the VP started reading the newspaper for about the next 25 minutes of that interview. And uh, right when they were going to do the old show me out the door, I said, hey, Bob, this is the part when you put down the paper and focus because I'm about to say something you should understand. And I gave him a David Letterman top 10 list on why they were going to hire me. And then I dropped my resume and walked out the door. Oh my and uh, <laughs> <laughs> my future boss and one of my best sales mentors, Ron Mills, uh, called me a few hours later and asked what I was doing the next day. He took me down to Portland to play golf and said, pretend you work for us. See what you can get done with this guy. And uh, in that round of golf, I shanked the, shanked the shot at the perfect right time, doubled down a bet, sold two pallets of beef jerky, which is more than they had ever sold in Oregon before, and uh, got the job on the way home. Oh, my God. That, I forgot about that story. So, yeah, that was, uh, so that was uh, when I went to work for Goodmark Foods. They were, oh, they were a couple, they were a couple hundred million dollar family company. Um, God, a great, I love working for family company. Uh, that, so that was the same way best kosher was before they got acquired by Sarah Lee. Um, so, so, uh, go to work for those guys. We get gobbled up into the machine. We be become Conagra Knights. Um, Oh my God, the brainwashing that goes on when you get recalled to corporate headquarters as a sales team. And there's like 800 of you in an auditorium. And the lady from HR starts standing up about using the corporate computers to like go on poker gaming sites. And you're the only person in an auditorium of 800 that stands up and says, I call bullshit on that after 20 hours of actually working for you. If I'm going to go gamble for 20 minutes, 
<laughs> if you want me to carry my own laptop to do my gambling, then that means I'm going to stop working for you at 5 p.m. like all of you folks that work in the office. And then I sat down. And you could see my boss do the face palm, which is the guy who hired me at Goodbar. Uh, and then about three weeks after that meeting, the CEO of ConAgra put out uh, all email to like reply all um, about some complete BS that was going down. It was, we were basically illegal and we were rolling semis of product out to customers that we knew would reject the loads at the end of the quarter. So we could pad the numbers so that his numbers would look great. So he'd get a, a wall street would give him a BJ. So I hit reply all uh, it. I had, as soon as I had vested the pension, I, I actually waited five minutes. Then I called HR and made sure it was vested. And then I hit send on the email. But yeah, I replied all called out as bullshit. And uh, I think six months later, the board removed him. But that was uh, so that was how I jettisoned myself out of ConAgra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the only thing Ron said when he called was, well, you burned that bridge. And I said, no. I napalmed that bridge. So if I ever thought to turn back, it would burn my eyes out of my skull. Uh, so that, uh, that's when I went and found another awesome family company that was in the same range, a couple of hundred million dollars. So they were a real company that had it going. Um, they were called Java Trading Company. Uh, they were in Seattle. They were basically the first commercial air roaster in the United States that was able to pull it off on a commercial scale. Oh, and, well, and thanks to our interview with Nicole Sauce the other day, um, we know what air roasting is. It's like a giant popcorn popper. Yes. So the the difference is if you think about conductive roasting, right, in an old uh, – so basically in the 1500s, right, the, the way you roasted was you chucked beans in a frying pan and you fried them. Uh -huh. So direct contact, conductive heat, uh, if, if – nobody's seen a coffee bean before uh it's like it's like a popcorn it's really hard and half the size that you see them when they're cooked um and they're green so you have to get it from that form to double its size and and browned right so in a frying pan it's direct heat you are applying massive amount of heat to the surface area of the bean to try to get the whole bean to heat up to a point where it will turn brown and expand um, so, you know, in the, oh, I don't know, 17, 1800s, they went from the frying pan to, you know, figured out how to bend that into a circle and have horses make it go around. And then yeah, the drum roaster was invented, right? So you're basically doing the same burning, except now you've automated the moving the beans around. Uh, so they've roasted like that forever. Um, somewhere in the 1980s, I believe, uh, air roasting was invented. So instead of direct conductive heat on the bean, it's, uh, it's a convective heat. It's being floated on a bed of air. It's not in direct contact with, with red hot metal. Um, you're in, you can control the temperature of the air stream and you can control uh, how long it's in there, right? So you you have a lot more you have a lot more control of the process. Um, you're not burning the outer layer of the bean to try to cook to the center of the bean. Um, and if you do some quick geometry, if you burn the whole outside of a circle just a little bit, it's the biggest part. So 
basically all coffee that's cooked in a drum, 9% of the material that you grind up in the grinder and put in the brew basket is charcoal, like literally charcoal. So uh, you're throwing away 9% of your yield, right? Because the charcoal can't make coffee. All it can make is acid water. And then the acid water is always in drum roasted coffee. So you're always having to taste around a defect to try to taste what the farmer intended with the bean. Um, air roasted coffee lets the bean taste like it is. Uh, doesn't mean good or bad. It means that you will taste it. So if you have an inferior coffee bean on a drum roaster, the defects come through much, uh, they're much more forward. Uh, so it's, uh, and the, the, the issue is Starbucks is using between 5,000 and 10,000 pound continuous batch roaster. So is Green Mountain. So are all of them. So you got a minimum wage kid basically standing at the end of a machine, just streaming beans into one end of a tilted drum and coming out the other. They're approximately cooked kind of how they want them, but they always have the burn defect. Um, air roasters, the largest one in the world that I know of right now is 160 pounds. There's a limitation for how much, how much density you can lift with an airstream before it becomes unstable or you lose too much heat because of the distance. Um, so because there's that limitation, the way that distant lands found to overcome that was uh, daisy chaining them. So you'd have a, a hundred thousand square foot warehouse just lined up with coffee roasters and the computer would be shooting the next batch to the top to get ready to drop for when the previous batch dropped out. So you got a bunch more people and automation working with many more roasters in that situation to try to even keep up with the volume of the 10,000 pound continuous roasters. Sorry. <laughs> you started me on a coffee tiring. No. Yeah, it's great. I, so I, and I love coffee. Um, I actually almost started a coffee company because unlike you, I have had lots and lots of business ideas that I just didn't follow through with. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I kind of, I kind of learned about it. I just had never heard of air roasting until I talked to Nicole the other day. So um, that seems Coffee's the second largest traded commodity on planet earth behind oil and uh -huh. nobody's trying to replace it. Now really think about that statement. We're using less and less oil, right? Because more and more stuff's going to go electric. So the oil guys are already crapping their pants because they're watching their industry dissolve. Now, the coffee guys have just started to penetrate China. And the reason that they're not going faster is because coffee farms don't, you know, the level of quality that Starbucks wants to serve doesn't exist. Um, and that was what the other half of that coffee company merger, the distant land side that were the farming and green team. That's what our guys were battling with their guys for identifying coffee farms and buying them or locking them up. Uh, it takes five years to get your first bean out of a coffee tree. So if you say, go take China from 3% coffee drinkers to 6% coffee drinkers, you've got a huge problem because you don't have supply. Uh, so that's uh, their scrambling to try to find the right land at the same time it's a commodity so the sea market price is low as it's ever been so a lot of the family farms are walking away from the 
business because any other food commodity pays better. It's, it's a really weird market. And that's if you go look at the coffee graphs, there's just major whipsaws because of the five-year lag. Uh, and the best book you could ever read is called Uncommon Grounds. And it kind of explains how the second largest money stream in the world has really had a lot to do. Everybody says war for oil. Mm, yeah, kind of <laughs> read the book. All right. I've got it. I'll put a link in the, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, so would you, I mean, are you, are you, are you bullish on coffee as a commodity? Like as far as um, the price goes, given that the demand is set to skyrocket? Well, yeah, it, 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 it um, it's weird. My, my, my big, huge, crazy life goal at the very end is to have a coffee farm. <laughs> we will see. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not because it's going to be profitable. Maybe, maybe it will. I pro- profitable in another sense, as far until you've actually gone out of the country to, to, to source and, lived on a coffee farm and kind of seen how it rolls. It's hard to describe. Um, <laughs> kind yeah. Of like I mean, I've show. seen, I've seen documentaries. Huh. It almost, it almost looks like you're just out in the jungle. It doesn't look like a agriculture farm, like a cornfield or anything like that. Yeah. I look up Hacienda La Manita. Um, if you want, want a cool look up on the internet. Um, I met people on that farm, 2000 hectares who, who were in their mid thirties to forties who had never left the farm in their entire lifetime. Uh, there's interplanted with all the coffee is everything that you could eat. There's avocados, all kinds of citrus, just food. There's animals everywhere. Right. And they're not like the crazy U S if you're hungry down there, that's called food. Uh, and then uh, all, everything growing is edible. Nothing is ever sprayed. Um, once a year, they run a semi down to the, to the uh, sales tax free zone. Right. And as a community, they buy whatever they want and pay for the one truck to make the mountain run a year. So yeah. Why? I don't know. It's a, it's an awesome way of life. Um, so yeah, my, my plan is to try to parlay all this crap up into a, into a coffee farm. Uh, but yeah, not, not to make money, just to make it exist. Um, I've been following uh, one guy's story from uh, Norway who bought a coffee farm down in Argentina and he's permaculturing it. So he's basically going with the stun method, plant just crap loads of genetic variety, plant crap loads of trees, and just let it all weed itself out. Um, the straw will survive. That's I, I, I like that idea, so I'm following that project right now. Um, but yeah, that's a that's where hope that's where hopefully all of my crazy endeavors end up. Um, but along the way, we uh, so the last ten years, I've been working on acquiring land and setting up some type of cooperative space or creating a space just to let magic happen, uh, which is where we had the Swatch Fest, uh, which is what I call Camp Suniki. Um, and it is rentable on, uh, on hip camp. Nice. Uh, camp Suniki. What's the, what's the meaning behind Suniki? Oh, okay. So it's down on the long branch. Uh, it's down in long branch, Washington. It's on the key peninsula. So the key peninsula is like a sun shadow, just like Port Angeles is. Um, so all along there, it's called the sunny key. 
And when my daughters were young, we were running out to the property and I was on the phone with somebody and I said, you know, the farm's on the sunny key. And uh, the one in the back seat said, Suniki, what's Suniki? So uh, Camp Suniki was born. So it's S-U-N-E-E-K-E-E. Uh, already on it i'll make sure to i'll make sure to yeah. link to it man it's only 35 dollars yeah. a night too i mean that's 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 good that's good camping right there okay yeah so we're thinking about I, i'm an old hippie you know i think i, I think all trades should be voluntary and there shouldn't be coercion mm-hmm. uh, i love to camp but camping for me usually involves oh a nice water bong and some loud music or uh some bow and arrows or what like whatever um, so the state park at 10 o'clock, you get the shh and the neighbor three feet from you and, uh, you know, don't have beer on the picnic table, whatever. So, uh, if you read through the camp Suniki ad, it basically is like, Hey, come rent paradise, do whatever you want. Uh, everything out here will kill you, including the black bears and the coyotes. Uh, but it's your space. Have fun. Be safe. Don't burn the place down. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Are you also are you also farming your land or doing anything else? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I started a duck operation out there, um, and then uh, so basically, I love starting stuff and spinning it up and getting it going, and uh, and then basically handing it off when I find a competent human. Um, yeah. So yeah, I uh, <laughs> uh, a guy and his wife are uh, took over that duck operation out there. So yeah, it's uh it's an active farm. Um, we're zoned agricultural and the uh, camping is allowed because you're allowed to do uh, agricultural tourism. Okay. Um, so I'm looking here at this episode where you were on Jack Spearco's show, another, another duck farmer. Um, and yeah, just a hippie duck farmer in disguise. <laughs> yeah. Two peas in a pod. Uh, you've got this CBD specialty coffee. Is that still going on? What are you doing with that? Yeah, it, uh, um, well, when I left the corporate gig and I was free to just pursue my own interests, uh, I started helping a lot of, uh, uh, medical cancer patients, uh, with their cannabis, um, worked with a lot of brain cancer patients mostly. Uh, so I learned a lot about cannabis, cannabis genetics, um, <laughs> Back in the day, uh, we even created Space Needle. It was, uh, what was that? It was a Blue Dream Vortex Cross. God, that was a great weed. Um, but yeah, the cease and desist from the Space Needle Corporation, is a, that was a proud day. Um, so yeah, so really got into cannabis genetics. Um, and then understanding, uh, there, there's basically over 100 cannabinoids in a cannabis plant. Uh, if, if everybody's confused at this point, a hemp plant is a cannabis plant, except one of those hundred cannabinoids is missing. So since one of the hundred chemicals is not present, uh, it goes from being called a cannabis plant magically under the federal vocabulary. It just became a hemp plant because it was missing Delta nine THC can have all the Delta 8 THC at once, which will get you just as high, but uh, it's legal because it's Delta 9 free. Um, so anyway. Is, that, uh, is, Delta, is Delta 8 the stuff that I'm seeing advertised on a bunch of podcasts right now? 
Uh, oh, probably. Yeah. They just kind of like, okay, so that's the, so that's the bigger story. Um, so yes, that's the answer to the short question, but the, so there was a hundred cannabinoids. They for the federal government forbade all research into the cannabis plant for the last hundred years. So now that there's a hundred chemicals that are all interesting, um, as each one kind of comes out of the shell, right? Cause there's, there's only so much time and resources for the chemists and all the people to figure out what each of these chemicals do. Um, they're still playing the, Hey, there's no science on that game. Well, you're the one that banned the research. So, you so know. when the, so when the feds legalized hemp, what, a couple of years ago or maybe when yesterday, they, I, don't, I don't know. Did yeah, they just, when they defined hemp. It would, yeah, and and legalize it. Yeah. Did they just not know that this Delta Eight existed? Is that uh, correct? Nobody re- when they did that what was that three years ago at this point. Something um, like that. I don't know. It's yeah, yeah. in twenty in twenty twenty. Time doesn't matter. So that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot the time warp. Okay, right. Because okay, n- there wasn't any real money in the industry, right? Because it was all black market. So all black market has no interest in doing basic research. Um, so sure, of course not. As soon as that lid opened with Washington, Oregon, Colorado, kind of kicking the door down and letting the true cannabis farmers on the medical side with the Delta nine go forward. Uh, the, the second thing to market in that space really was waxes and oil. Um, which is basically taking the plant, ripping it down to just its chemical components. So now you had industrial food grade labs starting to work with, with the components of the plant as, as individual units of things. So at that point, people started, I mean, people were going for the money, right? CBD was the thing of the, of the hundred cannabinoids that one had been identified first because it was kind of plentiful, um, right? And so they started working with it and holy smokes, you know, it works, it cures. <laughs> and, and I don't mean it cures anything. It's not intended to cure, help, blah, 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 blah. Since I sell it, I got to say that. Anyway, <laughs> of course. Uh, all BS. Um, so magically they found out it works, right? So that, that, that became the hot train of the day. Okay, then you're going forward, going forward. Uh, CBG, cannabigerol, became the next like, oh my gosh, if you include a little CBG in with the CBD, it makes CBD so much more effective. Um, and then they discovered CBN. That's the compound where it's, it's active thing that it does is make you sleepy. So that's the sleep agent, right? And now they're like, hey, if we just find one more of these hundred that'll get you high, we could sell it legally everywhere because it's hemp, not cannabis. Uh, so that put the research teams that, you know, like money because they got to pay for their billion dollar lab they just built um, down the road. So now they've discovered Delta 8. <laughs> so now, as of right now, you can order the biggest, finest sugary crystal laden CBD bud that you can find sprayed with Delta eight and rolled in hemp terpenes delivered to your door for something like $300 a pound. 
legally with papers from the USDA. Well, that's fantastic. I, w- I wonder. Yeah. I mean, you, you ought to be. You ought to be farming hemp. Forget coffee. No, no, no. Uh, we. I, I. I had gone down that road. We actually started attending the the setup of Washington State and all that. And uh, no way, the market crashed. Uh, you could get a kilo of pharmaceutical grade industrial uh, CBD last year. Uh, well, it went from 10000 to 5000 to $500 in the last oh, 18 months because now it's an agricultural crop, right? All right. the corn farmers out in eastern Washington have figured out that hemp's super easy to grow and that all their mechanical equipment for corn works pretty well on it. Um, and then they've discovered that the hop drying equipment <laughs> works really good for cannabis buds or for hemp buds. Uh, so okay. yeah, when I was at that meeting and I saw the old timers in the overall say, so y'all are becoming oil farmers now. I, uh, I saw the writing on the wall, but the interesting part is right. They're making so much more of it. And now the distilleries exist. And now there's 95 more cannabinoids to play with, to find out what, what do they do? How do they work? Um, so when we started out with, a um, doing a private label, uh, CBD coffee, um, we're not allowed to, uh, we're not allowed to introduce CBD to the food supply in Washington. Um, but you can in other States where their department of banks have set up already. So we outsourced that, had that done, but then I really started thinking about it. And the game isn't CBD. CBD was just the first thing to the game. The game is all cannabinoids. So that's why we started the new division of the company as cannabinoid natural foods. So the the recipes in each thing as the new discoveries are made will kind of be made. I I can't really say it's made for a condition, right? Because it doesn't help treat, prevent, or cure anything. Uh, But each one will clearly identify what the chemical does. So what's the, what's the process behind um, infusing cannabinoids into coffee? Uh, that is a proprietary, uh, <laughs> that is a proprietary thing. Well, dang. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's basically the same as uh, industrially putting on any flavoring. Oh, all right. Sure. Um, so it's, like it's more than, it's, it's more, it's more than coffee. a spray, but less than a, but less than a time machine. Then there's a, yep, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, pretty, pretty simple. It's just food lab stuff. Um, but yeah, the, uh, so yeah, the, the, uh, it's, you know, it's a whole new market. Um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be an interesting thing. Um, so yeah, I've got, uh, we got that company up and running. Um, so yeah, that's, then the whole then the whole deal is finding people that can make really high quality products, getting them set up for for doing it right, and then uh, so yeah, I'm gonna kind of cut loose this year and get around and get on shows and try and pump up our brand a little bit so I could be a little more visible so we can we can start getting the message out to more humans that freedom exists and if they stand up and claim it for themselves, they can join the rest of us and have a much happier life. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so getting back into the kind of business of coffee, I have heard uh, 
especially from especially from like free market libertarian types that fair trade is a bunch of bunk and there's just nothing to it. What do you think about fair trade being the coffee expert in sort of the uh, agorist community, I guess? Um, it's funny. Uh, uh, like I said, that last deal I put together is to get Embassy Suites on Rainforest certified coffee globally, uh, for which we got an extra dime a pound to be added to the contract to spread around to the farm to make make life better on the farms. Um, there's a couple different certification agencies. Um, if I Fair Trade is the last one that I would use ever um, for anything. Um, now, that being said, I source fair trade and organic beans uh, for my blends, especially the FTO Blonde, because it's a fair trade organic blonde espresso. Um, there are clients, and just like you know with the, the full farming space and all that, that they want to overpay for the label because that's a way that they know, you know, it, 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 it helps them feel better. Uh, so... The guy that runs fair trade down in San Francisco, I believe drives a Ferrari. And that's usually all that needs to be said in that discussion. Uh, the <laughs> dime a pound that you pay extra to get the F on your label, maybe a penny of that goes to the people doing the work on the farms. Um, fair trade doesn't designate where that on intentional overpayment goes um except to the farm so it really the the fact that most farms are losing money kind of negates the whole thing right now right because zero 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 um but when they when they're rolling nothing says that any of that money ever goes to the bottom um that's why we like working with rainforest alliance a little bit better Although all the eco hippie stuff that was a little commie, um, but their whole deal was basically uh, setting minimum working conditions and such, right? So you had to use that money to bring facilities up to X and Y. But some of their inanity too, uh, we were using Panamanian Indians on one farm for picking. And uh, I mean, they're like literally living in a jungle. They're a jungle tribe that lives in the jungle. And they like to bathe in the river because they live in huts in a jungle. And uh, we had to actually place armed guards at the river and keep them out of it to keep our rainforest certification on the one farm. Uh, oh my so we had to force them into cinder block buildings and uh, make them shower in our Western showers um, at gunpoint because if they went in the river to bathe, we would lose the certification and then there would go the money. So yeah, the uh, tail wags the dog. Um, it, 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 it is just like USDA organic. It's in my opinion, complete bullshit. You're just paying for accreditation to the, the one, the, the nice thing in working with ethical farms is what I've always found is if you're a customer, you're welcome on our property. Come on down anytime you want. Check it out for yourself. There's no chemicals around. You'll see, right? We don't need to pay a third party for that. And with crowdsourcing and with immediate feedback loops now, the first person that goes down to the farm and sees a big sack of insecticide is going to whip their phone out, take a picture of it, and the world's going to know about it in about a day. 
So how much do we need to overpay intermediaries for knowledge? Yeah, for sure. That's a, I, I was a member of a CSA a while back. Um, that's community shared agriculture where you basically yeah. buy a share of the, uh, <clears throat> the, you buy a share of the crops and then you just get a big box every week or two um, full of, full of your produce. Uh, and these farms didn't want to pay the fee to be like officially declared organic by the USDA, um, even though everything was organically grown. Um, so that's yep. how they had to label everything was quote organically grown. But of course, because because of the sort of society that we live in, um, people would rather see a government seal of approval and also see all of these migrant workers and you know subsistence farmers um, just barely scraping by, put out of business just so that they can get this little seal of approval and, and, you know, feel better about themselves. The sheeple will, right? Like if you're just a mid-level bureaucrat in a governmental organization pushing paper for the machine, yeah, yeah, government stamp, right? You'll love it. Suck it up. I would rather not sell to everybody. I'd rather know my customer, like the real way, like chit-chatting with them and knowing them. And I would like to serve people who get it and who understand value for value and understand the government is only an interference in our relationship and it can add absolutely no value. It can only, it can only slow down our relationship, right. Or impose costs on us. Uh, So yeah, I, I think as far as producers, we need to wake up and you know what the people that want, lowest priced commodity crap, let them have it. And the people that want to lap up the government stamps and seals, let them have it. But we need to stand up and start talking honestly about why we don't have it. That's, I mean, the first thing at the farmer's market when somebody wants to start talking to you about something is, you know, absolutely not certified, you know. They're, they're certified by me. And if you want to come over and hang out and watch me roast it, come on over. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I would love to, I would love to go visit a farm actually, but the, the farmer's markets near me, I mean, they don't even pretend, I mean, obviously there are some farmers there selling their stuff, but the really big booths and tables and stuff are, you know, I mean, you can see the Del Monte boxes stacked up behind them. They don't even make a, they don't even make it look like they're, trying to sell you uh, stuff that you couldn't also get at the grocery store. Is that, yeah, you know is that common? I mean, they had, well, I would take a picture of that, right? And blast it on the local, blast it on the local chat. I mean, if, if the farmer's market's just repackaging, you know, out here uh, in Seattle, they are pretty militant about, you know, it's like, Farmer, the, the people, one booth will call another booth out for not making it, and they'll literally drive down to your place and make sure you're growing blueberries. So, it, uh, yeah, it basically right in a voluntary agorist market, anything goes. Right, the the reselling Del Monte boxes is cool as long as you're telling everybody you're reselling Del Monte. Yeah, well, and I mean, nobody's under the illusion. I mean, you know, bananas don't grow in Minnesota. We we kind of know where they're coming from, but yeah, it, it seems like that's not a farmer's market. That's just like an outdoor supermarket. Yeah, it. You know, I for uh, it, it, it. If 
if if you can't grow bananas there, then there's you're not really hurting the local farmers by having been. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I'm. I grew up on Grateful Dead and fish parking lots where everything and anything got sold and all deals had to be negotiated. And, you know, it was like all things like that. It's an, and I go, I like seeing chaos. So I would always rather have a more, more players, but you know, everybody being held to the standard of you got to tell the truth. You know, if you made it, say you made it. If you're reselling it, say you're reselling it. Just, I mean, that's, Shit, that you can't get to a win-win-win in any deal if you can't be honest. Tell me about the tell me about the Grateful Dead and fish parking lots. I I've I don't know if I could tell you the name of a Grateful Dead song, and the only reason I know who Fish is is because I was a huge Dave Matthews Band fan in high school. So I'm a total. Oh nerd. come on! Yeah. Everybody oh, I know. I know. Truck, I know. It's terrible. Trucking. Truck <laughs> Got my chips cashed in. Uh, okay, so uh, Michigan State. I think I was like 19 or some crazy thing like that. Uh, oh, there's a whole other story about the first show that never happened. Happened. Uh, but they played, uh, they played, um, what the heck was that? Somewhere in Canada. And uh, that was when the drinking age was like 18 in Canada, 21 at, at Michigan State. So we ran across the border, saw an awesome show. I got to see the parking lot scene for the first time where it's like anything goes. You want to buy anything. Um, on the way back to Michigan, we were all like, hey, we're about to go through customs duty. Uh, so we grabbed half gallons of, uh, we grabbed half gallons of rum. And uh, so then we set up a tent at the, uh, at the palace Silverdome shows and just sold uh, hot buttered cider or, or hot ciders uh, for like three days, made so much cash. We did do the end of that tour and uh, geez, then I never looked back just, uh, meet so many great people in parking lots just hanging out how cool is you know that? it's it's complete uh it's complete lawlessness right because everybody out there is slinging something fun and you know everybody's working together as a team to identify johnny law and uh <laughs> you know it's it's they call it the family for a reason Man, I had no idea. So, I mean, a Grateful Dead concert's parking lot is like one big um, pork fest or squash. Yeah. Fest. So, uh, okay. So, when I lived in Chicago, uh, saw them at Soldier Field. That parking lot scene was occupied. Like people didn't leave. Like they parked their car and stayed for four days, um, all on the downtown waterfront from south edge of Soldier Field. Shit, that parking lot was about a mile long to the south. So you're talking like, I don't know, 40,000 cars for four days that didn't move, that just set up camp. So you could just, there, there were two ways to roll, right? You would either go in and vent something, or you would just bring good old, you know, dollar bills to the show and acquire cash. You could, you could eat three good meals a day of, you know, vegan burritos brought to your, brought to your tent door, or uh, my favorite is bacon grilled cheese. Uh, if we do the tour this summer, that's what I'm going to sell is uh, coffee drinks and bacon grilled cheese sandwiches. That sounds delicious. Oh uh, man. I, I'm sorry. I missed that. I, 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 you know, I mean, I came of age in the nineties and um, 
didn't really didn't really start well jerry going died. to concerts so, and yeah, stuff so almost the 2000s i so. and i saw my first fish show uh michigan state ballroom 91 with like 400 people and i had my finance 440 test the next morning so i think i only took a half a tab of acid uh, <laughs> but to see those guys 40 feet away like just roll it i knew i would be following them so 91 what is that like 30 years of shows now um i actually married my wife at the uh seattle show and two weeks later we did our honeymoon we rented the corner of the uh, luxor and then saw the mgm show so yeah it uh you know like all of these communities those are those are uh, to two giant communities that exist that I try to get the message of freedom and liberty out to, but they are such status. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You, well, they just don't see anything's wrong because, you know, there's flashy blinky lights and awesome music and everybody's dancing. Um, so they're, they're really a lot, mostly apolitical. Um, and the old deadheads are mostly anti-government, but you know what? It didn't affect them until this music stopped. And now that the music stopped, a lot of them are spinning and lost. And it's just, it's so sad. So I just, I've had enough. I decided to stand up and try to be a beacon, like calm people down. They don't need to be afraid. This isn't kill my, I had an 80, oh gosh, my aunt's over 80 with a heart condition and a diabetic and in a nursing home. She got COVID, got taken to the hospital, was back in the old folks home five days later. So I say just go with the flow. If yeah. you treat yourself well, take vitamins, you know, <laughs> you control the denominator. So the fatter, unhealthier, sedentary, more worrying you are, right? You make a smaller denominator. The healthier you get, the, the more you take care of yourself, Right. The, the more uh, the more you interact with nature to build your own actual immune system. Right. The denominator gets bigger. So nobody, yeah, nobody sure. controls that but you. The uh, yeah, it, that that reminds me of like the the germ theory versus terrain theory of uh, infection, which um, I haven't I haven't done enough reading on it. But, uh, you know, it does seem plausible to me that the the body that the that the virus enters plays maybe even a bigger part than just the fact that the virus enters the body in the first place. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. And the, the super interesting graph is the total death us. Uh, if you, if you plot them on an actual graph paper, which I did and shot up on my Facebook and MeWe page just for fun to piss everybody off. Um, you can't, you can't hide the debt. Right. At the end of the year, the USA will have X number of dead bodies for 2020 from all causes. doesn't matter who, how, or why. And that number will be known. And if you, if you look up what it is for 16, 17, 18, and 19 and plot them on a graph, it's a, it's a, it's a very steady line because population is growing at a very steady rate. And magically, come the end of this year, the number for this year is going to be exactly where it should be then they're not going to be an extra 300,000 dead. Yeah. I do. At that point, how do you, you know, I mean, it's, it's just math. I do wonder what the, what the spin's going to be on that. Like I, it would not 2.4 million dead right now. 
and there's yeah. only what 17 days left i mean it wouldn't so, surprise me it wouldn't surprise me if there's if there's a blip but you're right i mean the the people the people there's not going to be it might even be down it should be to be on track of just the normal course of death should be 2.9 million and it eh, hmm, we're not even going to get there so if if it's below track what's going to be the uh, super scary news to tell us why there's no dead bodies oh yeah i wonder if uh, i wonder if like the lack of workplace deaths and car accidents and stuff like that will also have well, an impact on it. I don't think about if you don't have old people going in for useless medical tests all the yeah. time to be told <laughs> that they have something that 90% of the time, if you just didn't go in, wouldn't get treated and wouldn't kill you. But you get put on all kinds of crazy meds or cut. I mean, the I think the number two cause of deaths U.S. is medical error. So by keeping people away from the quacks, maybe we just do a lot better. Maybe people will figure that out too. The problem is nobody will know it. I mean, they're going right. to, they're going to have to spin it somehow. Oh yeah. No, they, the, uh, the medical industrial governmental link is just so ridiculous. My, my brother and my uh, dad are drug reps and, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> For all the stories I can tell you of the industrial food complex and how absolutely perverted it is of what's on the grocery store shelf. Aren't you glad you went into beef jerky? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Because, well, and actually, it was funny. Uh, An uh, uh, old Buddhist lady had told me, like, when I was, it was funny. I, I kind of said, yeah, I'm selling this food that, I don't, you know, at the end of the day, it's not really helping anybody on the planet. It's kind of nasty. And she was like, it's okay. You can quit any time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took years of bouncing around, but, you know, but it finally sunk in. You, you don't have to do unethical work. You know, if you work for an agency right now that harms humans, doesn't help people's civil rights or human rights, if you're helping the government, I mean, government is oppression. It is nothing but theft at the point of a gun. So if you're a little secretary in a little office, you're not doing too bad. Nope. You are as culpable as the door kickers. And it is a choice. You can choose not to work for the evil empire anymore. Might not be as pretty. You might not have as much shiny things to show your neighbors, but always within you to make the ethical choice. What about, so did you, did you say that you had become Buddhist at some point? Uh, well, as, as I started to have kids, well, the, we, um, we basically were both, uh, we'd both been brought up. Uh, I think she was Methodist and I was Presbyterian when I was a kid, you know, first at, uh, at mom point, um, so uh, we, we knew if we were going to have kids that we wanted them to be anchored into a community larger than ourselves, but we kind of both knew that we didn't like what we had seen before because it was basically just hypocrisy that was so glaring I couldn't take it. Um, but we kind of put that aside and went on a church hunt. So, uh, we literally, it's, uh, we just, you know, we started going through the denominations, a couple different churches of each, looking at the close 
proximity, yada, yada. And uh, when we got down to the uh, Seattle Buddhist temple, like main lobby and then kind of going into the main temple, there's like, you know, the business bulletin board that's in most churches with all the yada, yada, day-to-day activities and uh, pictures of the senseis across the top and like right in the middle of the face of the main sensei, there was like an index card that you can tell it been like written out with Sharpie. I later found out by him. And uh, it said, uh, it said question everything, especially me. And it was pinned over his face. <laughs> so I just saw that and I loved it. I got a chuckle and it was like, okay, there's somebody who, who you could have a discussion with. They don't assume they're right. And, uh, you know, and so the, I just, I loved it after that. Uh, I'd studied, you know, Zen in college and Eastern philosophy and all that for all my humanities classes. Um, but being, uh, just being immersed in it, it's, uh, uh, you know, um, it's a philosophy more than a religion. So, you know, mm-hmm. there are like, Catholic Buddhists, uh, or it, it doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't require adherence to a single deity. Um, but what I, the community was just great. It was a, uh, it was a good place for the kids to see something different. Um, and being, yeah, it was interesting. That was probably the only time, uh, I've been a minority. It's mostly, uh, mostly Japanese. Uh, so that was kind of, uh, it was kind of fun having the kids be like in the Sunday school class early that they were the minority. So I, I think that was that that was a really valuable experience. Yeah, I tried uh, I, I tried Zen meditation. I, I was going weekly and I just never got into it a few years ago. I, I think for me, it's uh, it's really difficult to stop thinking, I guess. Uh, although now yeah. I've been using this, I've been using this app that um, I think Thad Russell turned me on to it. It's called Headspace. I've been using it the last week or so, and it's, it's working really well. They it's, it's guided meditation, but it's not like, all right, now picture yourself on the beach kind of stuff. It's like, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's actually telling you how to, how to clear your mind um, and how to focus on your breathing and stuff like that, which you know, I kind yeah. of, I'm enjoying the, I'm enjoying the, the instruction. Yeah. It, it's awesome. Thinking about thinking it's it, uh, it, it, a little focus goes a long way. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I'm a, I'm a Shin Buddhist. So basically, uh, you know, we're, we're the, you know, life happens in, <laughs> don't take yourself too seriously. Is that, is, is Shin um, contrasted with Zen then? Yeah, right. Zen is more like an awakening, an enlightenment. Oh. Um, you know, uh, um, basically like uh, um, getting away from like uh, tra- big, big traditions and stuff. They still do, right? Because everybody loves to have a party. Uh, but <laughs> uh, Chin's more like ancestors and uh, big ceremonies and you know get-togethers and stuff like that. More, it's more about what you would think about like a church than a Zen church. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Potlucks um, and schools and, you know, that kind of stuff. So as, uh, as sort of an elder statesman, um, not to, not to say you're old, but you're, you're older <laughs> than me. So um, what, 
what advice would you would you give to somebody who is still working in a nine to five but would like to kind of break free from that from that cycle? Ah, uh, <laughs> oh, it's the it's the it's the cycle. It's the cycle. Yeah, it, you know, you'll break the cycle when you're ready. It, it, as soon as you realize, like, <laughs> how very it, Buddhist it of you. Yeah, no, you're stuck. If it, 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 as soon as you go with the flow, um, Jack told a story one day, something about a, a pig seeing like other or holding on in a river and like being convinced if they let go, they're going to die. Right. And then one pig lets go and like goes flying and then learns to learns how to fly because he starts to control it because he had the courage to let go. It's as soon as you control your desire, which is usually like for stuff, (laughs) uh, you, if, if once you detach from like, having to like, you know, give a crap what people think and have you know, all that. It makes, it makes starting your own thing so much easier because eh, maybe you got to live in a van for a year to get it done. I don't, you know, I, I had to get divorced, uh, <laughs> give it all away and start again. Uh, just, you know, you know, we all have our own path. As soon as you start actually thinking about like, I'm really like when you get down to first principles and you really understand that you own you, <laughs> you're in control of you, you know, that it, it, it makes you stop and think and then, you know, do what you want, do what you like. If you're not harming other people or their property, go for it. Doesn't matter if somebody doesn't like it. Doesn't matter if whatever, go do your thing. And don't try to please everybody. Yeah. Well, everybody that's not doing everything wants to tell you this one little thing you should do because they've never actually done anything and they have no idea what a logistics train looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Be open to criticism and hear people and even repeat back to them. Like, so you think I should blah, 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 blah. You know, then they might think it's crazy too, or you just might talk to yourself a little bit and find that, you know, uh, the, the one thing too is there's truth and knowledge everywhere around you. <laughs> Sometimes you get shown the light in the strangest of places. If you look at it, right. It, it's my, it was one of my favorite dead lyrics and I try to live by that every day. There's, there's some, it's the whole permaculture thing too, right? Spend nine hours thinking about the project for every one hour of action. So observe and interact. So watch what's going on around you. Try to learn the system that you're about to play in at a systems level and not an actor level. Um, And I would say there's a lot of people out there that are willing to give away a ton of valuable information for pretty much free. If you just ask. Uh, Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, I mean, look, I had been planning on starting a podcast for years and years and years. Um, Sometimes with, sometimes with people saying, why, why does the world need another podcast? Um, And I don't know if the world needs another podcast, but I sure as hell, have interviewed some really interesting people who I wouldn't have gotten to if uh, 
and, and gotten that free information that you were talking about. If I had, <laughs> if I hadn't had a record button in front of me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the biggest, see, the biggest person stopping that was you. As soon as you said, okay, and let it happen. It just happens. Yeah, and for sure. Serendipity and riding the wave. I don't know how many times as soon as I've been like really like gotten out of my way and said, okay, I, <laughs> I hear this thing calling long enough. I will get out of the way and let it happen. Magically people show up that are just standing there ready to help. So yeah. And mentors, Holy smoke. Yeah. Uh, my three kids are getting to the end of high school right now. And, uh, you know, they're kind of seeing the whole college sham thing. And I just, you know, if you want to go build rockets, go start sweeping the floor at SpaceX. Seriously. Like you'll run the place in a year or three. If you show up and just do some stuff, it, uh, there's, there is nothing stopping you. Uh, I have three daughters and I remind them every day that the glass ceiling is complete bullshit. It doesn't exist. Every woman can go as far as they want, but they got to kick ass too. I mean, if you're not putting in 20 hour days and you're not getting on a jet 200 days a year, you are not a deal maker. Yeah, for sure. I think my, uh, my corporate career path anyway, has, has largely been built on that. Um, I didn't, I didn't finish school until I was into my thirties and that was mainly because my mom uh, wanted me to get, to get a degree. It wasn't because my employer required it. I mean, I started out from a help desk position and, you know, worked my way into HR and, um, from there to other positions. So, um, yeah, it's just do it. Yeah, exactly. Just do it. <laughs> uh, what you were saying reminded me of one of my favorite quotes and I'm not going to start the Jack Spearco quote of the day thing, but I do want to read this before we finish. Um, it's from a philosopher named Dallas Willard. He was a professor at UCLA for a long time. Um, and the quote is the cautious faith that never saws off a limb on which it is sitting never learns that unattached limbs may find strange, unaccountable ways of not falling. Aha. So yep. yeah, you it's know, like it's you like don't know until you jump. Yeah, be the pig. <laughs> All right. Yeah, totally. Great. Well, Brian, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, yeah, totally. Hey, if you guys would love to help the farm and help my uh help my devious plots at world domination, um food forest farms is where we sell all of our coffee, handmade soaps. Um, and there's even a button at the shop down towards the bottom that uh, is just a donate button. Uh, it surprises me how often people just are like, hell yeah, I want to see more of this and just donate. Uh, so I thank you in advance for that. Um, my other side gig that it's funny, that was the last time I was on TSP was to announce the start of trade show Sherpas. Um, I basically, if the world ever does restart and you're maybe too freaked out to do a trade show and you would like another human to take a risk, uh, that's me. So I, uh, I go man your booth, do whatever, or I'm your helper. Um, so trade show Sherpas.com is my trade show company. And very lastly, uh, if anybody wants to get, if you have a product brand or service that you think 
could really take a boost from having a national audience, um, give me a call. Uh, I can get you on the 25th uh, top-rated talk show that's on over 200 radio stations. I love helping small brands get to be big brands. Um, so uh, I put you on the radio in uh, over 50% of the markets in the country for way less than you can even imagine. I just can't can't quote it in public. So PM me. Uh, I'm on MeWe. Uh, MeWe, I'm scrambling Bojangles. Uh, if you're going to use the evil Facebook, I'm Brian D. Norton. Perfect. Thanks so much, Brian. Yeah, thanks, James. All right. Thanks again to Brian for joining me today. Uh, this is episode 17, so you can find the show notes, as always, at urbanagorist.com slash 17. Um, just so you know, I'm going to be taking the Christmas holiday off, so I will be back with you on Monday, 1228, for episode number 18, and I think that is it. So, Merry Christmas to those who celebrate it, and to those who don't, I hope you have a great week anyway. Don't forget to hit the like and subscribe buttons. And if you have a few minutes, you could give me a great gift by writing a review on iTunes. Thanks again for joining me today, and until next time, live free. This is the way.